Good morning. As, as Steve said, it is always a pleasure. This really does feel like a second home to me. I'm always very refreshed. And even the, the people that you're praying for, you know, uh, across the, the, the ocean in the UAE is somebody who I, who I, who I uh, had the privilege of serving as an elder with at uh, 3rd Avenue. So even, even little things make it feel like home to me. So I'm thankful for you all. Uh, also, please know that the saints at Foothills Baptist Church are praying for you all this morning as well. And so we are thankful to God for you and the ministry that you have going on here in the, the far ends of Arizona, way out here in the West Valley next to California. So, and, and we on the, the south side of town, uh, across uh, down, down south of South Mountain, we send you greetings as well. So, uh, when Pastor John asked me to preach, he asked me to pick a text. And so what I did in order to find a text that I would preach is I went on the website and I looked at some texts that had been preached or hadn't been preached recently. So I just went through the sermons and I saw that in the fall, uh, your former pastor, John, John Filkey, had preached on 1 Peter chapter 1 last October. And then I saw that Malachi Tressler, a couple of years ago, who's a good friend of mine, he preached on the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 2 to you. And so what I thought is I would preach on 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12, which includes what Malachi said a couple of years ago, because it's important for the argument that goes from 4 to 12. So I'll spend a, a very brief time on verses 1 through 3, but I also assume that most of you might not have even been there when he preached two years ago, or many of you might not have been here when he preached two years ago. So we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12, and that was the, the, the reasoning for why I picked this text. There's no nefarious reason. John didn't tell me to preach this to you all or anything like that. It was really just me going on the website and looking and seeing what had been preached recently, uh, and I thought it would be good to pick up in 1 Peter uh, pretty much where Pastor John Filkey had left off. So with that being said, when we come to a text, particularly a New Testament letter, we want to ask a few basic questions as we kind of jump into it, so even though we're jumping into chapter two here. This isn't an exhaustive list of the kinds of questions that we would ask, but I think that these are important questions. Who is the author and what is the audience? Who is the audience? What is the audience going through and why is the author addressing them the way that he is? What is the difference between that audience, first century Greco-Roman world, and us in 21st century America. So those are some questions that we want to, to ask and, and answer. So when we're looking at Peter, who is the author? Well, it's the Apostle Peter of gospel fame, right? The guy who's always putting his foot in his mouth. The guy who every time you turn around, he's there in Jesus's inner circle, and he says something that sounds really, really good. And then just a moment later, he says something that sounds really, really bad, right? And so you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? That's his response. And then just a few short verses later, he's rebuking Jesus because Jesus is saying that he must die, right? And so, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to that same guy who he commends just a few verses prior. Well, that Peter, obviously, as you see the book of Acts unfold, especially the early chapters, we see that he's transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ right? And the, the, the spirit dwelling inside of him. We see Peter actually ground the theology of his letter as he's writing to these Christians who are in what we would call today Asia Minor. They're in Asia Minor, Turkey, 
uh, they're in that place, and he's writing to them around the time that Paul is in prison in Rome. Peter himself is also in Rome at this time, so around 62, early 60s, around 62 AD. And what he's trying to tell these Gentile, mostly Gentile Christians who are in Asia Minor, is that they need to be a people who understand the truth about the gospel in the midst of their sufferings. And he grounds all of his theology in what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do. And all of that is really grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if we were going to go through 1 Peter, the first few verses of 1 Peter, he refers to these people as elect exiles of the dispersion. They're spread throughout Asia Minor, and he's trying to show them that they're sojourners in this world, meaning that this world is not their home. And then he talks about how Jesus' resurrection from the dead has caused them to be born again to a living hope. His resurrection from the dead causes them to be born again to a living hope. And he talks about that living hope as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven and guarded by God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last days, at the day when Jesus Christ will return. And he talks about right after that how this salvation was anticipated and looked forward to by the Old Testament saints, particularly the prophets. Everything is culminating in this resurrection event and what the church is called to be in this time, right now, in Peter's audience. And then he tells them, he gives them some imperatives, as Peter is, is, is regularly doing throughout his letter, and he gives them imperatives to be holy and to be sober-minded, to gird up the loins of their minds so that they can live a life that is characterized by right thinking, this sober-mindedness. We're going to talk about this a little bit more, but sober-minded. If you're sober-minded, you see the world for how it truly is. You see things for how they really are instead of how your emotions may be telling you they are in just a quick flash or in a quick moment. So that's what Peter is, is grounding these saints to think about as he moves into chapter two. So our text today is going to be 1 Peter 2, 1 through 12. So I'm going to read it and then I'm going to tell you the big idea and then we're going to jump into the text. And this is what Peter says. So because of all of those things that I just summarized from chapter one, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you have constituted a people in your son, Jesus Christ, who is the stone, who is building up this house, this temple of living stones, us through the power of your spirit. And Father, I pray that that reality would set into our hearts and into our minds in ways that we can't even hope or imagine, ways that are only explained by a miraculous work of your spirit. So Father, today I pray that we would take seriously the call to be this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people for your own possession, and that, Father, we would be so thankful for that. Father, that we would understand who you have constituted us to be in your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so my big idea, I probably oversimplified it, but I usually have big ideas that look like Puritan book titles. And if you don't know what that means, it means they're really usually too long. The last time I preached at my church, they had to have two slides to cover it. So So this is maybe a little bit overly simple, but the big idea of our text today is this. God's people put away childish sin and grow up in the gospel. We are able to do this because Christ is the foundation of the church, which is comprised of believers who offer spiritual sacrifices. There's a lot more going on in this text than that, but those are some of the key elements that we're going to look at today. So again, God's people put away childish sin and grow up in the gospel. We are able to do this because Christ is the foundation of the church, which is comprised of believers who offer spiritual sacrifices. So 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, I just want to spend a little bit of time here. We're not going to spend much time here. So uh, I know that that Pastor John usually spends almost all of his time on the first point. Uh, I'm going to spend almost all of my time on the second point, right? So we'll, we'll get through this first point rather quickly, especially since you heard a sermon on it two years ago. So in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, we see that since the church has received the gospel, we live the gospel, right? Since we've received the gospel, we live the gospel. That's kind of the idea that that Peter's trying to give. And he says this, so put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, live for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he gives the so or the, the therefore right there. He, he's actually saying, it, 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 it reads like this, putting away therefore all malice and deceit. He's expecting us that we're doing this. We're putting away therefore all malice and deceit because the good news of the word that was preached and accepted came to them, which is the end of First Peter chapter 1, They're expected that they're putting away all of these things. They're putting away, right, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. It looks like that's the command in the English. That's not actually a command in the Greek. The command is that they would long for pure spiritual milk, 
so that they would desire greatly pure spiritual milk. It's, it's expected that they're putting away these vices. And then he says, the way that you put away these vices is by longing for that which is good. So contrast, right? Malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, with the way that he describes this as newborn infants, right? As the innocence of a child, don't be like those things, be like the innocence of a child who longs for spiritual milk. And then he finishes the imagery by growing up, by growing up in the gospel of God, because you've tasted that the Lord is good. And he's just gotten done at the end of chapter one by talking about this gospel, right? Which, which grows us up. So what should we do? How do we, how do we think about this text? First of all, I think that we gird up our minds, like he said at the end of chapter one, we gird up the loins of our minds when we desire to be holy and sober-minded. Right? We desire to live a life that is characteristic of, of, of God in holiness and by seeing the world the way that it truly is. Peter is writing to a people who are vastly afflicted. He is writing to a people who are persecuted He is writing to a people who at almost every corner of their new life in Christ, they are being pressed by the culture around them. I hope that that sounds familiar because I think that if we are living lives as Christian in any time, in any place, in any country, at any age, that's going to be how we feel. And I think it's in our present circumstances how we do feel. But be sober-minded about what the true reality of things are, right? The world opposed Christ. Of course, it's going to oppose his people, right? And that shouldn't cause us to go into things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, though I've noticed all too often that it does. I haven't noticed that at this church, just to be clear. That's why I said John didn't tell me to like preach this text, right? Right, but... All too often I see Christians lose despair and it's because we, we take our eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ and especially as he talks about it in chapter one, the resurrection that has caused us to be born again to a hope that is imperishing, imperishable, undefiled, unfading and kept in heaven. We lose sense of what reality truly is. So what we're to do is we're to put these things behind us So in chapter one and chapter four and several other places in this letter, he's going to talk about how we no longer live according to our former passions, right? Who we once were before we had Christ. We leave these things behind. We leave malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander behind. Stop doing them. Remove them from your life. And when you find yourself starting to act like a hypocrite, or malign or slander someone, right? I I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you of that and that you will cease and stop doing that. And instead of doing those vices that belonged to our former way of life, long, this is the imperative, long for that pure spiritual milk. And he says that that pure spiritual milk is the word, right? So long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, right, you may grow up in salvation, And he's just gotten done talking about the word. He's going to talk about the word again later. That's what this pure spiritual milk is. It's the word of God in the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
So we're supposed to grow up in our understanding and our knowledge and grace of the gospel, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3. That's the way that we do it. Grow up in your salvation. So how do we do this? How do we grow up in our salvation? Right? Peter states clearly the way that we do this, and he says that we long for that pure spiritual milk, and he says, and it's the word that was preached in chapter one, the gospel. And a lot of times what, what the application might be here is something along the lines of, so read your Bible. That's good. Read your Bible, right? It's a good thing to do. But I actually think that Peter has something else in mind. I think what is, he has in mind is obey your Bible. So if you want to grow up in the grace of the gospel, he's going to start his letter off, the first verses of chapter one, some of the last verses of chapter one, and the last verses of chapter four, he's really focused on obedience to the word of God. And he's going to contrast that, we who are in Christ are obedient to the word of God, with the next section, verses four through 10 here in just a moment. He's going to say those people who, who reject the gospel disobey the word as they were destined to do. So obey the word. So you have to read the word to obey the word. So start with reading, right? But once you read, don't, as, as James says, don't go as somebody who looks into a mirror, they see the situation for how it is, and then they walk away and they forget what they look like. James says that that's like somebody who reads the word, it exposes them, and then they walk away and then they just live life however they want to. Don't be like that. Be a, not only a hearer of the word or a reader of the word, but a doer of the word. And when we read the word, we probably feel convicted, right? I don't know. Is it just me? When I read the word, I'm like, I am not living according to the standard in this word. And, and the first thought that we might have if we lean towards a legalistic understanding of things is that I haven't done enough to, to merit my own salvation. Of course you haven't, right? That, that's not the point of obeying the word. We can't merit our own salvation. The point of obeying the word, right, is being obedient to the gospel of God, understanding that Christ has been the only one who can merit our salvation. We have no good works before God. He causes us to do good works. He's made us to live in good works, as Ephesians 2.10 says. We're not saved by works. We're saved to do good works. So, do the word. So when you come across that text and you're just like, it says that I'm supposed to love my enemies. I wonder what that means, love my enemies. And you're trying to parse it out. And you're trying to find ways that you don't have to love your enemies. Stop it, right? Love your enemies. It will transform your life if you begin doing the word, if you begin living the word. Another way to, to help you do this is we think so individualistically in our kind of 21st century American context. So when we think of reading the Bible, we think of quiet times, we think of doing this on our own. Stop thinking in that category as well. We read together and we live together these commands as a church, right? as a people who belong to God. And so by living out lives in like your, your small group ministry, which was just mentioned, what you do is you come together, you read the words together, you hold each other accountable to reading the word together and living the words together, right? Maybe ask some really pressing questions as you're in those smaller groups and say, all right, so what's one way this week that I am going to 
be obedient to the word of God. And then just have those people ask you next week, how did you do? How did you do? Did you, did you obey the word? I'm sure that if we've been reflecting on the word, there's something pressing on our hearts that we should be doing. Right? Talk about that with each other. Read the word with one another. Live the word with one another. That's how this thing works. And cling to the church, which is what the next section is about. So in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, it presents Christ as a living stone who's rejected by men, and then the church as living stones that are God's people. So but Christ himself being this foundation cornerstone. And this is what it says. As you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And there are three big ideas in this text. There's a lot going on there. There are really three big ideas that Peter's trying to communicate to these people who are undergoing trials and suffering and difficulties. The first one is that Christ is the living stone that was rejected by men that is the foundation of the church. So they're being rejected by men. Think of how comforting that is for them. We'll we'll go into that in more detail in a second. Number two, Christ was rejected by those who disobey God's word and still is rejected by those who disobey God's word. Number three, the church who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good, coming off of verse three, is a spiritual house that's built by God. So that first idea, Christ is the living stone that is the foundation of the church, right? Peter had a conversation with Jesus about this idea, about what the foundation of the church is in Matthew chapter 16. And I think we see some explanation of that conversation here in 1 Peter chapter 2. And what Peter is doing here is he's quoting prophetic texts or Old Testament texts that speak to the salvation that has been revealed in Christ. Remember in 1 Peter 1, Peter said that the salvation that he's talking to them about is that which the prophets and the saints of the Old Testament longed to see come to fruition. And then he proves that here in chapter two by quoting a bunch of texts. He actually, he, he references at least six texts in these few verses. The first three of which talk about Christ. In Isaiah 28, 16, I'm not gonna go into great detail. I'm gonna have to oversimplify the context of each one of these. Otherwise, you won't be able to have your gathering over here where you greet like visitors and newcomers and we'll still be here this evening. And nobody wants that. So, so in 28.16 of Isaiah, he quotes, he quotes, that's the first quotation that he had just given. 
right? And so that, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone that is precious. As he quotes that text, Isaiah 28 is about God removing a covenant of death that the people have and giving them life. And within the flow of thought of Isaiah, this life is offered in the new covenant sacrifice of a Davidic king, the Messiah, who we know is Jesus Christ. So it's about salvation and the removal of death. Psalm 118, which we actually read a portion of, is about the salvation that God brings to his people. It's about the salvation that God brings through his people and through the Messiah. And of course, then he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 8 there in that third quotation that he gives. And that's in the middle of the section known as the book of Emmanuel, where he offers, he offers this prophecy that a child is going to be born. And this child that's going to be born is going to be a sign for the peoples, and he's going to remove gloom and darkness and bring about light to the nations. So all of these texts are about salvation for the people of God. And Peter had said this, right, in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He's quoting these texts, I think, as a ground for what he said there. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Christ is the fulfillment of those ideas. He is the, as Peter describes here, the living stone who has been rejected, but this living stone that is chosen and precious. So I guess I would just ask you this. Is Christ, do you think of him as chosen and precious in your sight? Is Christ precious and beautiful and wonderful in your sight? Or, as you go about your day, as you go about your life and the concerns of this world that inundate you day in and day out, do you give little thought to Christ and what he has done? What he has done for you, what he has brought about through his perfect sacrificial atoning death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, defeating death, that Isaiah concept, right? He's going to abolish and null this covenant of death, that he has given us life. He has taken us from captivity to sin to freedom in himself by the power of the Spirit. Does that enter your mind when a trouble or a trial or a difficulty comes? The preciousness of what Christ has done. If you don't long for the pure spiritual milk of the gospel, right, it might be that you don't think of Christ the way that Peter describes here. So the command was in verses one through three, long for that pure spiritual milk. If you find yourself not longing for that pure spiritual milk, do you think of Christ as precious? Do you understand? Do you have a sober-minded understanding of who you were before Christ and who you are now in Christ, that you were dead in your sins and transgressions, and now you have been made alive. We were walking in darkness, but now we have seen the light. We were dead and are now alive. Treasure Christ. And I think in community, the way that we treasure Christ 
as we talk about Christ with one another, we talk about those things that are, uh, that are important to us, right? So John's from Kansas City. I'm from Kansas City. Every time John and I get together, John Diedrich, your pastor, every time John and I get together, we'll talk about the Chiefs or the Royals. It's just going to happen, right? Every time we see each other, we're going to talk about the Chiefs or the Royals. And so, like, why? Because those things are precious to us, right? Christ is so much more precious. Talk about Christ with each other, amongst each other, as you meet with each other, as you're living life together in this community that Christ has built up. So Christ is the living stone that is the foundation of the church. Christ was the second part of those middle verses. Christ was rejected by men, right, by those who disobey the word of God. 1 Peter 1 focuses on the salvation that is ready to be revealed to those who are kept by God and abide in the word that was preached to them. So he's, he's giving assurance to believers who abide in the word, who keep the word. This text shows that the opposite is true as well. Those who disobey God's word were destined to. It's not my wording, that's Peter's wording. So in 1 Peter 3, Peter said that they had been caused to be born again. The believers in Pontus, Galatia, Asia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, they had been caused to be born again to assure hope, right? And they were encouraged to believe and obey the gospel, but those who have disobeyed have have, have the same promise, well, not the same promises, but it was destined for them as well. It is a sure thing. Peter is actually going to elaborate on this later in the epistle, and he's going to elaborate on it even more in 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And he describes them this way, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And then he talks about how they are, are sensuous and greedy. And then it says this in verse 8. So this is Second Peter 2, 8. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Meaning, just what Peter says here in First Peter chapter 2. It was destined by God. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And then, he, and then he goes on later on and he says, God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment. So just as those who are in Christ, who obey God's word, they are kept in heaven by God, that salvation ready to be revealed, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. So those who are persecuting God's people Right? So those who are disobeying God's word, God has a judgment for them. Salvation for his people, judgment for his enemies. So that sounds interesting to say in 21st century America, right? We usually don't feel very comfortable saying things like that. Just read the New Testament though. Read some, Jesus's, you know, some, Jesus, some of Jesus's words. He talks about these things a lot. Read the Psalms. They pepper all the Psalms, right? Read the first 15 Psalms, the amount of times that you will see the ideas that God saves the righteous and he judges the wicked is in almost every Psalm. You're just gonna find it over and over and over again. This is actually a very hopeful text for God's people. These are a people who are undergoing persecution. Who are they going undergoing persecution by? Well, those people who deny God's word. And so to hear that God has, 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 has appointed judgment for them 
is a hopeful thing. They entrust themselves to God, not their present circumstances, because they know that God is a just judge. So if you find yourself going through trials today at the hands of someone else in an unjust manner, entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. They will be put to shame and their judgment is sure. There's a reality of the the salvation that is going to be revealed. Whoever believes in Christ, however, will not be put to shame. So that third idea in this middle section is that because Christ is the living stone, he builds his people into into a house or a temple of living stones. And Peter quotes multiple Old Testament texts here as well. He quotes Exodus 19, 1 through 6. So where he says that they are supposed to be a, a holy priesthood, a royal, a royal, a royal priesthood, a, a holy people, a people for God's own possession. It's a direct quote of what God said about what Israel was supposed to be after he brought them up out of Egypt. So in the book of Exodus, God rescues and redeems his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And then he tells them, this is what it looks like to live like my people. And he gives them the law, particularly the Ten Commandments. And he tells them that this is what I want you to be. I want you to be a holy people. I want you to be a royal priesthood. I want you to be a people for my own possession. And Israel fails to do that. At every corner, instead of trusting in God, they disbelieve in him. And that language is the language that the book of Numbers uses. They don't believe in what God has said. Instead of obeying God's word, they distrust God's word. They desire to go back to Egypt and think that that would be better for them rather than to live life in the land under God's law. But Peter here is saying that that reality of what Israel was supposed to be is something that is true here and now of the church. And we are a people who are holy. We are a people who are a kingdom of priests. It's a strange words to hear uttered in a Protestant church in Goodyear, Arizona, right? In the year 2023, right? We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation for God. We actually read a text in Isaiah 61 that describes the reality of, 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 of God's people and all of God's people being priests. This actually structures the book of Isaiah. If you read Isaiah 2, he talks about how he's bringing people from all the nations to worship him. And in Isaiah 66, he says that he's bringing people from these far off coastlands and these piddly little towns that have no significance, Pul and Lud and Tarshish and Tubal and Javan, these places that have no meaning on a map. He's going to call them to be priests and Levites to his God. That is what God has constituted his people as. A, A holy nation, this royal priesthood, this kingdom of priests. That is who we are. We weren't God's people, so he quotes Hosea. At the end of Hosea 1 and in Hosea 2, Hosea repeats this idea a couple of times. We were not a people, but now we are God's people. We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Old Testament Israel is indicted by those words. They're indicted by the fact that they didn't keep faithful to their end of the covenant relationship that they have with God. But those verses are looking forward to a day when God will constitute a new people in himself 
under a new covenant by marrying his people to himself in faithfulness and in steadfast love. And he's going to do that, he says, in Hosea 3, through a Davidic king, who of course we know is Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ has done, we are God's people. All of those statements about what Israel was supposed to be are true of who he has constituted his people to be in Christ, in the church. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then he uses the darkness and light language, which Isaiah quotes in several places, Isaiah 9 and several other places. So the church is described in these verses as living stones that are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. We can see the progression there, right? We are supposed to be a holy priesthood. And we start off by an understanding of who our foundation is, and that is Christ. That is our foundation. Peter's going to go here again in 1 Peter 5, as he's talking to the elders, and he says, as a fellow elder, right, I encourage the elders among you, right, as a fellow shepherd, I encourage those, those people who are shepherds among you to understand that we're all under, right, the, 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 the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So who we are is, is, is ground in. It's based on Christ being the foundation. We are living stones because Christ is the cornerstone. We don't build on another foundation other than Christ as the cornerstone. So what does it mean that we are, as this spiritual house, this priesthood of believers, as it's been called and known, that we're supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices? Well, that sounds really weird. Do I like pretend cut up animals as we're worshiping? What does that, what does that mean? No, it's not animals, right? There's no animal sacrifice here. If John ever starts introducing animal sacrifice, please leave, right? There's been a once-for-all sacrifice in the person and work of Jesus Christ, Right? We don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus Christ has offered the once-for-all sacrifice. You can read about this in Hebrews 7 through 10. Right. So, But living a life that is characterized by God's word, I think, is what Peter has in mind here. That's what it looks like to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And it sounds very similar to a very famous passage, doesn't it? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right? Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? And what is our spiritual service of worship? To present our bodies as living sacrifices. And you know what, you know what Paul says right after that? He says, and be sober-minded. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And so, there actually, I don't, I, I, maybe Peter is, is talking to Paul here in prison, and Paul's already obviously written Romans, and he's just taking some of the ideas from Paul there, but they, they track idea for idea at the end of chapter uh, one and through chapter two with what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. So he's telling these believers that they need to understand that their lives are to be spiritual sacrifices for God. And that looks like, again, obeying God's word. Remember the things that he had told them not to do in verses one through three. He told them to put away, to put off, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, what would it look like in your life? Maybe ask somebody close to you, have a conversation about this. What would it look like in your life to act in the opposite way of that list? So instead of malice, seeking to do good to others, what would that look like in your life? What are ways that you could practice doing good to others instead of malice? 
instead of being someone who's deceitful, right? What would it look like to be somebody who is characterized by truth in love, maybe in Ephesians 4 kind of way? Things that are appropriate in the scenario. Don't use the truth as an order to like bludgeon people, right? Truth in love. But what would it look like instead of deceit to be somebody who's characterized by truth in love? Instead of hypocrisy, right? How many of you have ever heard somebody say that they don't believe in Jesus and they don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrites? Most of us have probably heard something like that. And there's, there's some truth to that because if we have any sort of sober-minded thinking, we realize that we are hypocrites. We know the good that we should do and often we don't do it. What if we, what if we start living the, the gospel out in front of people? Not in a way to honor ourselves, but in a way to honor Christ. What if we live out what we believe? So instead of being hypocrites, we are people who are, well, the opposite of hypocrites. We have a true profession lived out by a true faith. Instead of being people who envy, I don't, I don't know if this is the perfect opposite of envy, but I think it's probably where my heart was drawn. Instead of being envious, maybe be thankful. What would it look like to be to be somebody who is thankful in your life. In the last week, have you been envious of something? Of someone? Oh, they've got, you know, better house or a better car or better kids or whatever it would be, right? <laughs> hey, right? Every parent knows what I'm talking about here, right? <laughs> Especially of, of little ones, right? Because sometimes little ones, right? I mean, like, my, my kid cries more than other kids. I don't know, like, something like that. I've got three teenagers, right? Like, every kid's better than my kid. Um, I'm joking. I love my kids. Um, but instead of being envious, what would it look like to be thankful to God for the things that you have? To be somebody who practices the ancient art of Christian contentment instead of the 21st century American art of keeping up with the Joneses. It's not an art. Don't keep up with the Joneses, right? Instead of being someone who slanders, what would it look like to be somebody who encourages and somebody who tries to bring about correction and comfort to others when you see them going astray? So instead of slandering, I can't, can you believe? Neil's one of my students, so I'm going to pick on him. Can you believe what Neil did? Like, I can't believe it, right? Instead of doing something like that, Maybe you go up to Neil, not Neil necessarily, right? And you say, Neil, I'm so encouraged by you. I'm so thankful for you, right? I, I, I see these things. So instead of being someone who slanders, being someone who encourages and lifts up and corrects at times, we all need correction. Read the book of Proverbs. The wise person loves correction. So all of those things I think are are big ideas that that middle section is trying to get at, right? So they're all try- it's trying to show us that Christ is the living stone that is the foundation for the church who was rejected by men because they disobeyed God's word, but that was God's plan. And that the church who are living stones being built up by Christ, who is the living stone, tastes and sees that, sees that the Lord is good, and so we live lives differently. Your life should look different than your coworker's life if, the, if you belong to Christ and they do not. Your testimony, the words that come out of your mouth, the the imperceivable gestures and, and movements of your body, they should be different, right? If 
Christ is treasured and precious and special to you. Peter is going to end this section, and actually verses 11 and 12 kind of serve as a segue between what happened before this and what's going to happen after this. Most think that these are like the turning verses, like the crux of the book. But I think it's important that you see where he's going as, as you see the rest of the book. And he says, beloved, and so what he says is abstain from passions. What we're supposed to do, 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, we're supposed to abstain from passions and await Christ's return. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, that wording again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If you are in Christ to understand the world properly, one of the first points that you need to understand is that this world is not your home. You are a sojourner and an exile here. If the shiny things of this world are what you desire the most, what you long for the most, that imperative earlier, you need to check your heart. You need to see if it is Christ that is the most treasured thing in your life and what he has done for you by bringing you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This world is not our home, but guess what? The, the passions of the flesh, our former life, as he talks about in 1 Peter 1, as he's going to talk about again in 1 Peter 4, they still wage war within us. So what do we do as Christians? We're putting those things to death. And how do we put those things to death? With the help of each other, the church. That's how we do it. We live life together in community with each other. And one of the things that Peter says in these last verses, just it's always blown my mind. It's one of my favorite texts. He talks about how they don't live life like the Gentiles do, right? So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He's writing to a group of people who are almost all Gentiles, right? And so He's writing to those people that Paul evangelized on his first two missionary journeys, right? And if you read like texts like Acts 13 and 14, you see that those people who accepted the word were those people who were Gentiles. Now, there are some, some, some Jewish believers among this, midst, uh, among this group as well, but it's mostly Gentiles. And he's saying, you are no longer Gentiles, that's always fascinated me, the way that he talks about this. There's one church historian, uh, theologian, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who talks about how in the first century, there became a new group of people, no longer two, Jew and Gentile, but now a third, Christian, right? This, this third group that's comprised of the other two groups. It's comprised of the other two groups. So Peter is addressing people who used to be of the world, but no longer are. Their understanding, their citizenship, their identity, everything that they understand and know is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the imagery that he gives here is that imagery of, of Christian warfare, isn't it? They're sojourners and aliens, so keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, right? So, these things wage war against your soul, right? So keep your conduct 
among the Gentiles, honorable. They wage war. He's picturing the Christian life as a battle being fought. This isn't the only place in scripture. Another part of being sober-minded, of thinking of, of reality as it is, isn't to make light of how we live our lives in our present circumstances. It's to understand that there's a great war going on. Waging of wars for souls. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6, doesn't he? When he says that our battle isn't ultimately with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. He talks about how we avail ourselves of the whole armor of God. He has given us warfare imagery. Do you think of the Christian life in such terms? Do you think of it as a battle that's being waged that has way more to do than the things that I just see right here and now? There's much more going on. I would encourage you to try to see in a sober-minded way and to think in that fashion. Because the world is watching. The world is watching the way that we talk about, the way that we live out the Christian message. So we are a people who is called to keep our conduct honorable so that those people in our lives, our coworkers, our friends, our family members who do not know Christ, that they will one day glorify God on the day of Christ's return. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are a people who are your holy people, who are your treasured possession. And we confess that we could not be called that apart from the perfect atoning work of your son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection from the dead, which defeated sin and death and the devil. But Father, we thank you so much that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because your son has done it all. He is the cornerstone. He is the living stone. He is the one that was rejected by men, but Father accepted and built up by you. And he builds us up as a spiritual house, as living stones who are supposed to proclaim your excellencies and his excellencies through the power of your Holy Spirit. So Father, even though in our own strength, we have failed to do that, Father, we pray that in the strength of your spirit, you will give us the grace to be able to do that. Father, we pray that we will be people who go out from here, understanding who we are, the preciousness and the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would be a people who desire to live lives that are honorable in the midst of our communities. That when trials come, that we would not shrink into ourselves, but that we would press in on each other and that we would care for each other, and that we would encourage each other, and that we would live lives out as your people in this fallen and broken world for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.